I think the future of supply chain is going to be heavily impacted on shifting left. The next extension to transformation across supply chains in supply chain teams and leaders is to really think about how do we incorporate the design engineering process with the overall supply chain collaboration, risk management decisions in a more integrated way. Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. My name's Richard Howells. I'm a Vice President for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP, Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. And I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Smythe, and I'm a blogger, podcaster, and marketer in the supply chain space here at SAP. So today you're in store for a fascinating conversation about supply chain risk and specifically what the impact of decoupling from China could mean to the U.S. supply chain. Before we begin, let's take a moment to introduce our guest, Richard Barnett from SupplyFrame. So welcome, Richard. It's a pleasure to have you joining us here today. So before we dive into some interesting topics, like we said, could you just take a moment to introduce yourself and just give some insight into your role today at SupplyFrame? Yeah, great. Thank you so much. This is such an important topic and fascinating from so many different angles. So I really appreciate the opportunity to engage in the conversation together. I'm responsible for marketing and SaaS sales at SupplyFrame. We are a company that was established over 20 years ago now and really grew up in the electronics value chain, really working to help both innovators within electronics, semiconductor and component suppliers reach and influence their engineering audience to make decisions around new designs and hardware systems, but also helping global manufacturers, contract manufacturers and distributors both shift to design for resilience, making better decisions at the point of design for new innovation cycles for products, and also manage and optimize risk to cost across their portfolio of spend. And obviously, we've been on the front lines of the global component chip shortage, the massive impact that the pandemic had, kind of watching it unfold in real time, because we have this network that we call the Design to Source Intelligence Network that has 15 million engineers and supply chain professionals really engaging across every global market. We're sort of monitoring and seeing what's happening, both from design engineering intent to price, cost, lead times, and then what's happening in each of the tiers of the market. So watching China versus the rest of the world, both in the early pandemic phase and now more recently, is just fascinating because we're constantly seeing new insights. And so we'd love to share some of those insights as we go through our conversation today. As background, before I joined Supply Frame, I've been a 25-year-plus professional in global supply chain software solutions, lived in Japan for five years. So I had a really interesting perspective on Asia Pacific and spent a lot of time in Europe. And I've really been always fascinated about how we can drive improved supply chain agility, resilience, and performance through new innovation and new solutions and process change together to drive really big, important outcomes for companies across multiple industries. So it's an exciting topic, something I care a lot about and love to dive into it with you. Awesome. Well, we're excited equally as well. So, you know, you spoke about the pandemic and not really having a ripple effect across the entire world, as we've all come to realize. And that really exposed the risk in the global supply chain. So what types of risk have you been seeing in your experience so far? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in one way, what's been really great is that we have this kind of peak awareness of supply chain. In every family, I think we were all talking about supply chain in a new way based on everyone's experience of what was going on, whether it was toilet paper shortage or how we can't get a car with the right option we need because for some reason they can't complete assembly and all of that stuff. I mean, it's hit every consumer market. 
And more importantly, in terms of global manufacturers, OEMs, particularly, and the story plays out a little bit different in key industries, but we kind of importantly got to a higher level of C-level, board-level understanding and awareness of a new thinking, a new approach. It challenged all the assumptions of maybe what was good enough or what companies assumed they were managing very well in terms of their global supply chain. And the risk impacts were broad. And I think that what was revealed were a few different things. I think one is the impact of the bullet effect in global supply chains has always been a well-known phenomenon. If you have a massive change in demand, the propagation of the demand signal to multiple tiers in the supply chain gets distorted. So you get a high degree of uncertainty. On the flip side, with long lead time supply, et cetera, sources of supply, you have a similar kind of issue. Automotive OEMs had a really hard time sensing what was actually in real time very obvious to us probably six months before the automotive OEMs saw the impact was the immediate crunch on analog IC device capacity, semiconductor, you know, shutdown, and then re-ramping really fast. That had a massive ripple effect downstream. And in a lot of these industries that were overly optimized for just in time, just in sequence, sort of leaning out their supply chains as much as possible, particularly in automotive, where they put that pressure on buffering inventory and supply and market volatility a lot more in their tier one and tier two suppliers. That's what was revealed was the fragility of over-optimizing on efficiency, cost savings, et cetera. So what we're seeing now is a new thinking around how do we think about risk? And it's a broad topic, but I think the way we look at it is there's a contextual risk that's near term. This could be unplanned weather events. It could be political, you know, labor shortage strikes, factory fires, et cetera. And that's always been this, let's monitor that better. Let's understand maybe when that happens, like where that might impact us in a key supplier or a manufacturer distribution location, if that's part of our network. What's really now gone way beyond that is now incorporating understanding and predicting the impact of long lead time supply dynamics, particularly in electronics, which is highly complicated. You have thousands of suppliers that go into a new product design, but the risk concentration because of the complexity in electronics is much higher than almost any other commodity group segment or tiers of the supply chain, whether it's something that's a CNC fabrication metals or an ingredient mix for key ingredients from a process perspective, it's a thousand to one, the level of complexity. So when we look at electronics, some of the things that are revealed is that risk is locked in early in the product design. Something like 80% of the product lifecycle risk and cost is really determined every time a new product design is put into place, accepted, and then pushed into the ramp to volume in supply chain and manufacturing. And getting at the root, or what we call shifting left, to the root cause of driving resilience, a big opportunity at that point of design or improving the outside intelligence that most companies are flying blind about early on is a big opportunity to manage risk. There's obviously multiple risks we need to be thinking about, but starting as early as possible in terms of translating risk detection into trade-off decision-making is really the new area of focus. And the other dimension of this I'll just add in is an organizational one. See this really interesting pattern where companies have transformed many of their core functions, right? Whether it's customer experience on the front end and go to market, digital engagement, whether it's new ways of optimizing finance across a very complicated global organizational structure and moving into sales and marketing. And supply chain obviously has been a massive area of investment. It's something like $16 billion of total market size for supply chain management investment. And it's probably about 12 billion for PLM product lifecycle management. But if you look at what's happening in the investment around digitization and digital transformation in between what happens in the engineering silo and then everything to the right of that, whether it's sourcing, procurement, ramp to manufacturing, 
supply chain more generally, I call it like the digital divide. What describes state-of-the-art in that zone across almost every company and industry we engage with is Excel spreadsheets, email quotes flying around, ad hoc phone calls. It's just crazy, right? That this is one of those areas that's been really left behind. And so we're in a moment of rethinking the impact of risk, getting to the root cause, and then really also looking at, it's not just about technology, intelligence, et cetera. It's really about organizational design, creating new cross-functional collaboration activities and normalizing how we assess risk in a normalized way across the product portfolio, not just from a supply chain risk monitoring perspective, right? So it's like, how do we link that together? And I think that's really an interesting area of new thinking that's emerging and a big opportunity for impact for a lot of companies. It's interesting that you highlighted the fact that 80% of the risk is locked in at the product design in the high-tech industry. But I would also say that it's not just the product design, it's the supply chain design of how that product is going to be manufactured, delivered, cured, etc. Because if you make the decision early on in the process that you're going to single source some key materials, then as the pandemic has shown, you inherently added risk into your supply chain of being dependent on a low cost manufacturer of a component or a product. And the chip shortage was a great example of that. Once production ramped up of all of the different products that required chips, there just wasn't enough to go around. The car manufacturers had canceled their orders because their demand had dropped. And when they saw their demand ramp up, the chips just weren't there because yep. they transferred their manufacturing of chips to home appliances and other things. Right. All these peak demand changes, right. right? A lot of the demand mix change was in areas that were super stable demand patterns before, right? But everything worked from home, education from home, everything going into data centers for mobile services, all of that cannibalized, not 100%, but probably 60% of the general core IC backed of chip market is general purpose. I mean, it can be used in the same applications in totally different industries. And again, automotive supply chain problem, you decommit demand, no one's gonna buffer that inventory for you if you change your mind. So they decommitted, it rippled down the entire multi-tier value chain and the semiconductor, everyone else chased the new demand pattern. And when they came back up and said, oh, wait a minute, we actually are ramping back up, demand's turning around. They were now last in line, right? With low volumes that they can't compete with very high volume consumer electronics companies. And we're tracking $300 billion in lost revenue just attributed to the chip component shortage, just in automotive. And that's just probably one of about a trillion dollars of lost sales opportunities that happened because of this massive disruption. But to your point around the single source supply and what happens in the early design phase, you're absolutely right. One of the things that we like to think about that a lot of supply chain leaders maybe don't think about this intuitively is that every new product design is a new supply chain. We've done studies the last couple of years and we track, for example, the increasing complexity of a board design or an electronic hardware system, right? And what we're finding is that somewhere between every major new product launch, on average has about 20% net new suppliers and components in the mix of that design. Now think about that. You're adding 10 to 20% new supply partners at some level in that supply chain on that new product. Supply chain teams are trying to optimize and simplify their supply chains and drive reuse. But the real driver of that change, that churn of exposing new risk and maybe New aspects of their supply chain is happening in the engineering function. That's where it starts. And then it's institutionalized in supply chain and procurement feels like they're playing defense, like they're just catching the ball and then having to work with that new reality. And that's incredibly dangerous in this market. If their optics on the risk 
is totally different from the scope of what the engineering teams are looking at. And that's the issue is that making a trade-off also in this environment, we've all known for years that single source is not good. China plus one is probably a good idea because of geopolitical strategies. Designing in an alternate part, if there's a form fit function equivalent, design in two or three in the new design makes sense from a risk mitigation. But when it comes to cost, there's very little incentive for anyone to say, hey, wait a minute, we're going to agree to pay 15% more for this new bomb or this new product design because it's a de-risk. We've gone to alternate sources of supply. We've got alternate parts designed in. We're diversifying from a source of manufacturing perspective. And that's valuable because we don't want to repeat what we just went through. That waterfalling of how you make those decisions and what the incentive alignment is from engineering to procurement to finance is very immature at almost every company that we talk to today. And that's really where the trade-off decision happens. Mm -hmm. So companies are struggling to operationalize and normalize what's the range of decision-making they need to make because theoretically you could de-risk a product but go way too far, right? At mm -hmm. way too high of a cost, and not be competitive in the market, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you find that Goldilocks moment where you're making right changes with the right intelligence and they're approved to make those cost to risk trade-off decisions that is like throwing across silos right now. It is not operationalized and owned, driven by finance or driven by operations to normalize that cross-functionally. That's really getting to the heart of the matter. I think mm -hmm. that balancing act is the biggest challenge that supply chain executives and businesses are facing. I mean, you've always balanced certain things when making decisions from a supply chain perspective. You've always balanced cost and efficiency, but now you've got to bring into account also the risk resiliency side of that, because yeah. as you say, mm -hmm. yeah, I might be prepared to pay a certain amount more because my risk reduces and I can still satisfy a customer order, but either my margin is going to be squeezed then, or it's right. going to cost more for the end consumer. Right. And I think what's interesting too, is figuring out if you don't de-risk or if you do too much risk assessment as well, how much is that costing in the end? Like you're talking about the balancing actor at equaling out. If it's costing, say, $100 million versus if you just invest $100 million into it, at some point it has to break even or hopefully work in your advantage. You know, So it really yeah. said that balancing act is tricky. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like you're saying, the supply chain has been the source of innovation around a lot of that trade-off analysis around cost to serve, for example, really trying to get at the full view of the total cost end to end from supply chain fulfillment, et cetera. And then what is the relative impact on time and in full to the consumer channel, particularly in consumer to retail, right? This has been highly optimized for leaders in the global brands and how they manage their very complex channels to market. There's been a lot of work around simulation planning in supply demand planning solutions, simulation solutions, supply chain network design as well. The problem is those models don't take into consideration the trade-off at the product design level of fidelity, right? And there's no normalized way of understanding the impact of a scenario percentage probability at the level of risk when it comes to the source of supply. You can do some modeling a little bit around if we have a disruption at our own network, what's that impact? We're pretty good at doing that, right? We kind of know what happens if a hurricane hits Florida and we got a major DC there. Okay, let's understand how do we be able to reroute dynamically for companies that are sophisticated and mature in what they're doing, right? But when it comes to engineering design and the inbound supply chain, particularly in electronics, where it gets so complicated, it's multi-tier, it's really hard to normalize that or put a number on that exactly, the probability of risk outcomes. So you have to approach it in a different way. 
And that's really in terms of the cost to risk modeling within the bill of material product MPI, the new product introduction process is where we see that needs to live. As soon as you flip it over into supply chain and it's just now part of the global supply chain strategy structure, you know what I mean? You're just one of a product portfolio. You're being translated into go-to-market demand, overall supply demand match. You lose all the visibility. Those solutions don't have that granular level, right? You can do general supplier risk assessment for financial risk, et cetera. That's great. But how do you translate into, again, the trade-off or the sourcing or negotiation decisions you're making when you're scoping for a new product, a new design? But there's some stepping stones, I think, that companies are now executing, which is just maybe starting with a mandate of no single source of supply if we can do it. You know what I mean? Or if we have a single source of supply, we really highlight that and we monitor and track that like crazy because that's a key fragility. That's an area of risk in the network. But honestly, it's not just about source of supply. It's about lead time risk. It's about engineering popularity. If you're designing something in that's going to be used broadly in, say, consumer electronics, you may not want to do that in a low volume industrial equipment design because you might be competing with an Apple or a Samsung in their next product launch and you might be at risk. Or how do you think about volatility around cost to lead time and sources of supply that are multiple tier, right? So you're looking at where that concentration risk, not at tier one, but at the upstream tiers. And that's really when you get into semiconductor where when we get to China, that's where it's oftentimes opaque. They don't understand what the actual concentration of the multi-tier supply chain or supply market concentration risk is from a geography perspective. So that's another key dimension of all this. That's super interesting. And I thought what you mentioned earlier in having those new design processes, having that 10 to 20% net new vendors and suppliers really only adding to that complexity of the supply chain. Because as we know, it's already an extremely complex world and it has such a major impact on our global economy, but of course, also our U.S. economy as well. And touching back onto the chip manufacturers and relying solely on China or very heavily on China, can you elaborate a little bit on the complexity of this and why if the decoupling does occur, it's affecting beyond the simple single source supply and demand? There's different dimensions to it. I mean, if we look at semiconductor, the value chain just in semiconductor, what a few things that we see is that there is the foundries like TSMC, now Samsung and others have really taken over the vast volume of semiconductor foundry capacity, but they're working with either fabulous semiconductor design companies and they're using their foundry capacity for their chip design allocation or even custom design, right? Where you have an ASIC or you have a specific specialized chip design and you're using that foundry capacity as your outsourced foundry. And TSMC has been the market leader in this area for a long time. They're highly concentrated in Taiwan. The semiconductor industry over time has also historically had more players in the market. So you used to have more both foundry and what's called an integrated device manufacturer, IDMs like Intel, for example, or in memory, Micron and SK, Hynix and Samsung. Toshiba, historically, had a lot of diversity, basically, in your overall ecosystem of the primary semiconductor manufacturers. What's happened is we've had this concentration of risk because the number of players that can afford the capital investments to either be foundry or even an integrated device manufacturer has shrunken. I mean, if you go back maybe 15 years, you can see that list in terms of the 40, 50% of the total market capacity go from 20 players to basically five today. And that concentration has happened over time because of the economics of who can afford to invest in the latest node, five nanometer or smaller 
investments because the new technology innovation cycles will depend on that latest investment of technology. The part of the diversity problem is that a lot of industries are exposed to a mix of either legacy or later node technologies or analog ICs, not just the latest active ICs that are at the processor level or other designs like AI chips, for example, is a huge area of investment. And that diversity of those players, whether it's like a global foundries, which has always been the earlier legacy node picking up growth because the automotive guys need them to commit to more capacity because there's such a reliance on those nodes. That context is important to look at what's happening with China because China is right now trying to massively invest and accelerate their overall semiconductor industry and capacity. Their ecosystem is more weighted to legacy node, but they're trying to compete into latest node and both for geopolitical trade, maybe for military security purposes, we're seeing not just US versus China, but EU, Japan, and Korea all basically harmonize and agree on two things. One is a double down on private public partnership models to invest and accelerate investment in new foundry fab capacity in their geography or in the region, and also in some ways to limit or manage the IP or technology roadmap for China. Those controls are really about who supplies semiconductor equipment and IP to enable those new foundries and operations to be developed and implemented. It's really an interesting story of the multi-tier supply chain around semiconductor because at core, you've got the semiconductor equipment players and they're also highly concentrated. So ASML is mission critical for anyone and they're not a monopoly, but they have their segment of leadership that's mm -hmm. absolutely critical based out of the Netherlands, right? They're a big player. And then you've got Applied Material, Tokyo Electron and Sarah that are built a bunch of semiconductor equipment. Export restrictions in China for that capability is really critical. It's like a, an absolute challenge because the China market, if they're going to scale and grow in their strategy, it's really hard to replicate or build up in domestically alternatives to each of those players because the level of technology investment IP over the last 20 years is you can't just rebuild that on your own. So that's a key dimension of it. But then the other part of it is a lot of this new investment that we're seeing that, you know, should de-risk us from say over concentration of reliance either in China or in say Taiwan or wherever the key market locations are, that new capacity takes three to five years to come online. So a lot of it's not a short-term answer. And even if you play forward five years from now, you're not going to get the right mix of new capacity to support the full mix of demand that's required in many key industries. The other aspect of this that's really important to look at is from a geography perspective, it's not really so much important where the foundry is. Semiconductors kind of front end, back end. You have this kind of die bank to wafer, and then you're printing basically chips, and then you do packaging, right? Test and packaging. The OSAT players, all the services players that do that work, are broadly based in Asia, not as much just in China. So it's a complicated picture. Your risk exposure from a geography perspective is always going to be in multiple countries and markets. And so the key point is that it's always good to have more diverse sources of supply in the market that's healthy for everybody from a demand resilience, supply resilience perspective, regardless of the geopolitical considerations, mm -hmm. et cetera. It's moving the right direction in terms of structural risk reduction in the overall supply chain value chain around semiconductor. But the idea then of we're solving for the decoupling of the geopolitical risk, say with China or any other trading partner, is very short-sighted, myopic, and really not a clear understanding of where the risk exposure is. It's very complicated. So when companies and when analysts look at decoupling risk, we look at semiconductor, then we look at all the component manufacturing, then we look at where those kind of sectors of innovation and services are, like in Shenzhen, for example, in China, 
it's very hard to just replicate what was organically built over 30 years in a completely new region or market, right? You can't quite do that. So the full decoupling costs, like Deutsche Bank did an industry analysis that it would take five years and a trillion dollars. Another estimate says that the total economic value of the electronics value chain is about $5 trillion if you look at all the downstream industries and their end products that are actually really reliant on that. So even if everyone agreed that we needed to decouple and everyone was making the appropriate investments and it was highly orchestrated, it would take four to five years to manage that unraveling, and it's just not feasible. Mm-hmm. So the ongoing risk of decoupling or risk from a geopolitical or trade perspective is going to be this you know, dynamic kind of popping up in different tiers of that value chain. It's going to be heavily influenced by both long-term capital commitments and then very short-term supply demand mismatches. And that's one of the things that we're generally seeing is that the markets are stabilizing. We're seeing our latest commodity IQ report that lead times and prices are stabilizing across most commodity groups that we've seen. But the inherent underlying risk of that changing quickly and being very specific in unexpected ways is higher than it's ever been. We can't rest easy on this. And it's, it informs kind of maybe where, as the market shifts, like taking a more holistic view of not just source of supply in China, but tracing where those multi-tier relationships are or where new capacity is being developed. And then figuring out how do you cover all your bases there is a harder challenge, but it is possible. And I think some of the best companies in the world are actually going through that. But it's an incredibly complex problem. <laughs> it seems as so. And I actually have a follow-up question to that because with China really, as you said, being the leader in this area, do you see any other areas within the world stepping up and trying to not take over that spot because it doesn't seem feasible, but are there any other hot spots around the world that you could see becoming that top leader or moving into its space? Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting, I think, is if you follow what Apple or Samsung or any of the major either high volume consumer electronics category or broad portfolio global manufacturers, following what they're doing is really interesting because when you have high volume demand in markets, you can scale a new location and then drive enough engagement buildup around the mm-hmm. ecosystem in that new geography very fast. Mm-hmm. So India is an area that we're looking at very carefully. There's been a lot of focus around, you know, Samsung and Apple moving to different manufacturing locations, scaling up capacity in those markets. Mm-hmm. That's something that's going to be an interesting alternative a little bit to core China and will build organically within India, new domestic suppliers and other global suppliers building new capacity, new plants that feed into those new hubs. Mm-hmm. When we look at Vietnam, which has been sort of the easier China plus one option that started really with the U.S. trade war with China and the Trump administration, that was kind of one of the first quick moves because it was avoiding some of the import tax restrictions. Very healthy growth there. You're seeing a lot of innovation and growth. You've got a highly well-educated local market, labor market that sort of has a higher potential, I think, to continue to grow into the more skilled roles that are needed over time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that investment has either been from Chinese companies extending their manufacturing capacity into Vietnam, where it's almost like a virtual extension of a Chinese-based manufacturer or supply chain. They're just pushing some of their final assembly of their capacity to Vietnam Mm -hmm. with the Japanese OEMs and Korean players that have had established penetration in Thailand or Malaysia, and they've already gone after a Southeast Asia strategy. And you've seen that new investment in Vietnam coming from there as well. But the overall investment from the U.S. has not been that significant directly in terms of new capacity there. And regionally in Europe, you're going to see 
what were the hubs for final assembly locations that were low-cost labor regions, Hungary, Romania, even Ukraine to a large degree, Poland, et cetera. Eastern Europe has been kind of a cluster, right? Depending on the industry where that's happening. Uh, you're seeing, I think, both a doubling down of let's bring more skilled electronics jobs or key suppliers, incentives for them to scale and grow in the core European markets like in Germany. But you're also seeing this rethinking of new supply locations that are around where these final assembly locations have been for a long time. And then in North America, you're seeing a lot of focus around new fabs, new manufacturing plants, trying to scale and grow and drive that ecosystem development back in the US. We're not really seeing the manufacturing jobs scale yet around that. It's too early to see that play out, mm -hmm. but it's very much tied into an ecosystem of universities, of startups that are doing new designs around IC and manufacturing technologies, all working together to create that ecosystem. Although there's got more final assembly moving into say Mexico, which has always been a favorite for North America, particularly with a lot of contract manufacturers having operations in Guadalajara and automotive building out in multiple areas. You're not going to see, I think, the primary manufacturing for, for high tech components, et cetera, shift to Mexico, but maybe a system assembly, final assembly stuff, continue to scale and grow there. Richard, I was going to ask a question about the American Chip Act. I think the challenge with bringing the manufacturing back into America for the chip production is the capacity or the time it takes to build a plant. The fact that China is investing heavily as well. The skill set that used to be in the US has eroded since the manufacturing went out of the country. The labor costs of competing against those lower cost countries are maybe doing the same. What do you see as the impact of the American CHIP Act on all of this? There's a couple different dimensions. I think, first of all, there's a kind of a sideline, you know, economist point of view on this, where you can say, is it really accelerating the innovation and investment that would not have taken place? Is it accelerating capital investment decisions that, you know, an Intel or even Samsung building a new foundry in Austin, would they not have made those choices or is it making those choices happen faster? Is it really driving that new investment? That's one of the things that we need to look at is like the effectiveness of the economic incentives and sort of tax advantage, even at the outside of the CHIPS Act, even at the state level, you see a lot of competition for that. Texas, where I live, has really been successful in making further incentives even at the state level. So there's that general view of how effective is it in terms of driving new capital or accelerating capital investments. I think that's a bit of a mixed story. I think it has accelerated and created key players when they're looking at making that new location investment, it's accelerated those decisions. But we've also seen a stepping back from the timing for when those projects are going live because of the overall market correction, softening of demand in memory and consumer electronics, et cetera. So you're seeing this kind of mixed signals. Now, in terms of key success factors moving forward, I think the CHIP Act has done a good job of trying to be as inclusive as possible of creating the right incentives for skilled labor, education, development, mm -hmm. partnerships with the universities around innovations, incubations, investments. They received a lot of feedback around a lot of experts in the ecosystem, including Siemens, which we're a part of, and I think have designed a fairly holistic program. But to your point, it's not really so much about labor costs because it's so capital intensive and foundry, right? What you're looking at there is not the labor costs, it's the capital equipment, you know, is the bigger driver. Very true in final assembly, but not so much in the earlier stage of foundry, semiconductor, sort of capital intensive aspects of what they're doing. But the skilled labor shortage and the time to ramp and the ability, and that's such an amorphous thing. It's really hard to 
make one targeted investment and make a difference, right? It's across the United States. It's complicated, right? There's lots of universities, lots of source of training. What can an individual company do to drive their own academies or ramp up skilled labor, et cetera? That I think is really the Achilles heel. I don't think we are seeing enough progress or, you know, kind of meeting the gap that's being projected by Semiconductor Industry Association. SIA is a very clear kind of read on this right now. And it's something everyone's kind of watching closely. And that's really the critical path, I think, to success over time. But it's also the ecosystem around all the complementary service providers. And I think we'll see that OSAT providers maybe being co-located in the United States, for example, or new ways of automation that are constantly occurring around what used to be labor intensive can be further automated in those downstream backend operations within semiconductor and those service providers. I think we'll see innovation happen quickly in those areas because I think anywhere we develop a new plant, for example, those are always greenfield opportunities to build a complete digital twin of the factory to look at green from the ground up innovation digitization, which has a huge impact. It's so hard to do that when you have an existing manufacturing plant location in place. And it's been kind of the line set up the manufacturing technology, the labor force, everything, how everything works is really hard to change. Mm -hmm. So I'm bullish on automation, improving and having a huge impact on a lot of these new locations. But I do think we got to keep a strong eye on the skilled labor dependencies because it's a massive gap from where we want to try to get to in the next five to seven years. Completely agree. And I think it'd be interesting to see the tie between universities and trade schools, especially as we hope to build this domestically. But the title of the series is, of course, The Future of Supply Chain. And we want to ask every guest this at the end. So if you had to summarize in a sentence or two from a high tech perspective, what is the future of supply chain? I think the future of supply chain is going to be heavily impacted on shifting left. The next extension to transformation across supply chains in supply chain teams and leaders is to really think about how do we incorporate the design engineering process with the overall supply chain collaboration, risk management decisions in a more integrated way. I think that's the key message that I would share with the audience, because I can tell you, it doesn't matter the industry. We see the same pattern. It could be aerospace and defense, industrial equipment, consumer electronics, appliances, med devices. It's exactly the same phenomenon, even though the volume, the risk that, you know what I mean? There are different industries, but this is a consistent pattern of opportunity for innovation. So that's the main area is shifting left is the key focus. Richard, thanks for a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on it. This is an area I'm passionate about. You guys are asking all the right questions. And I think we're all trying to figure this out together. Your passion comes through. It certainly does. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Please mark us as a favorite and you can get regular updates and information about future episodes. But until next time, from Richard, Nicole and I, thanks for discussing the future of supply chain.